Grab your Bibles with me if you would and open up to the book of Romans. We're going to be back in Romans chapter 1 together this morning. And uh, before we turn our attention there, let's just bow again and ask for the Lord's help and blessings on this part of the service. Lord, thank you for for all that we were reminded of in the songs that we just sang. Um, Thank you that we do have a great high priest who intercedes for us and our names are graven on his hands and written on his heart. Lord, we're thankful that we're not dependent on any person to usher us into your presence. Lord, we're thankful that this church isn't dependent on uh, any pastor or any leader to bring us before you, but we have a great high priest who has a perfect righteous standing, who represents us before you, who makes us acceptable before you, who makes our prayers and our praise acceptable before you. And so it is in Christ alone that we are clinging this morning. And Father, our prayer now is, as we turn our attention to your word, is, Lord, that our ears would be open and our hearts would be opened and that we would hear you clearly speak and that we would be changed by it. And we pray all this in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Again, church, we're in Romans chapter 1, and uh, we have started this study in what many people would consider to be, myself included, the greatest letter ever written. Um, It's a letter that's written by the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to these Christians in the city of Rome. Interestingly enough, Christians he's never met before. Paul has never traveled to Rome. He has never laid eyes on most of these people, but he's planning to get there soon. So remember, um, as Paul writes this book, he is on his way to Jerusalem. He's, He's collected an offering from Gentile churches. He's headed to Jerusalem to deliver this love offering to the suffering saints in the city of Jerusalem. And once that's done, he's hoping to head to Rome. And then from Rome to go out into the western reaches of the empire, preaching the gospel and planting churches. So that's his plan. But Paul knows to do that, to get the gospel out into the western reaches, he's going to need help. And he's hoping that these saints in the city of Rome will provide that help, that they'll partner with him in this mission endeavor that he set his sights on. And so he writes this letter to do a couple things. One, he's reminding them of who he is. So he kind of lays out his apostolic credentials, at least in the first part of it. But then most of this letter is Paul reminding them, emphasizing to them what his message is. So if they're going to partner with Paul in a gospel ministry, They need to be in agreement on what the gospel is. And what Romans gives us is the most in-depth explanation of the gospel that you will find anywhere in the Bible. So when you're studying through Romans, you are getting the very heart, the very essence of what we believe as Christians. It's so important that when churches and denominations lose their grip on the theology of Romans... They at best become weak, and at worst, they become apostate. So that Romans is the book that God has used so often over the years to do great movements within his church, movements among his people. F.F. Bruce, revered New Testament scholar, F.F. Bruce writes this about the book of Romans. He writes, There's no saying what may happen when people begin to study the letter to the Romans. 
What happened to Augustine, Luther, Wesley, and others launched great spiritual movements which have left their mark in world history. But similar things have happened much more frequently to very ordinary men and women as the words of this letter came home to them with power. And I love this last sentence. So let those who have read thus far be prepared for the consequences of reading farther. You have been warned. He's saying this book has power. So if you're going to keep studying it, be warned. God has used this to turn people's lives upside down. Well, so far, all, we, all we've studied is Paul's initial greeting. That's the first seven verses of it. And the normal way that Paul writes letters is after the initial greeting, he then spends time expressing how thankful he is for the people that he's writing to. There's actually only one letter that Paul writes where he doesn't express thankfulness. Anybody happen to know what letter that is? It's his letter to the Galatians. Now, why does Paul not express any gratefulness in that letter? Well, because the, the Galatian Christians, Paul is perplexed. Paul is frustrated. He says that they're so quickly abandoning the gospel. So they're embracing false teaching. They're abandoning the gospel. And so Paul writes that letter and just immediately launches in on what the problem is. But every other letter that he writes, he takes time to tell Christians how thankful he is. And that's what he does in the book of Romans too. And, and in this expression of gratitude and this description of his prayer, we get some wonderful insight into Paul's attitude toward these Christians. So if your Bible's open, we're going to read this section together. It's Romans 1. We're going to start in verse 8 and we'll go down through verse 15. Romans 1, beginning verse 8. Notice this is Paul's expression of gratitude and explaining how He's praying for these believers in Rome. Paul writes, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means, now at last I may find a way, in, a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual fate both of you and me. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Now, I think all of us would recognize that one of the challenges of our modern technology-saturated world, one of the challenges of it is it, it, it leads, it lends itself to a sort of isolationism. Now, just back up in time. Some of you are old enough that you'll remember when televisions were first becoming prevalent on the scene back in the 50s and into the 60s. And there was even concern then that all of a sudden you had families that were gathering together in their homes on, around a screen, that 
families were isolating from their neighborhoods and isolating from their communities because they had a screen that the whole family was gathering around. Now think about where we are now. Now our, our screens in some ways have gotten, have gotten smaller and smaller, right? And now it's not families gathering around screens. It's each individual person has their own screen. So that I can, I can build my whole life around my screen with my personal preferences so that I can only watch the shows that I want to watch and I can put together my playlist so that I never have to listen to a song that's not one of my favorite, right? Radio, you have to listen through seven or eight songs before you finally hit a song you like. Well, now I can put together a playlist where I never have to listen to a single song that's not one of my favorite songs. And I can interact with all of my friends through social media, which means I get to respond how and I get to respond when I want. And I only have to reveal the parts of my life that I want to reveal. And I can even have online communities with other Christians who see things exactly the same way that I see things. They have all of the same favorite authors. They only read the books that I read. And I can be part of an online church where I can fast forward through the parts of the service that I'm not all that interested in. And I'm part of this church with other people who I don't really know and don't really know me, but I can convince myself that I'm still part of this community. And of course, you recognize how, how that's a huge challenge to actually being part of a real flesh and blood church. Because in an actual church, you're telling me i got to come and listen to songs that might not all be my favorite songs. I don't have any of those songs on my playlist. And i got to sing those songs with people. And I can't fast forward through the parts of the service that I think are boring. And I can't, I can't put the preacher on 1.2 speed so I can get through the sermon a little bit faster than I would otherwise. And I've got to invite people in who might have favorite authors that are different from my favorite authors, they wouldn't even be part of my Facebook groups. But I'm supposed to go out to lunch with them and develop a friendship with them? I'm not sure about all that. But Paul is reminding us in these verses of how badly we need relationships like that. Not virtual relationships, but relationships with actual flesh and blood Christians who might even be different from us in some ways. I mean, think about it with Paul. He's writing to these Christians in Rome, Christians who in a lot of ways, he has almost nothing in common with, other than their mutual faith in Jesus. Think of how different Paul is from these Roman Christians. What kind of family had Paul been raised in? He had been raised in a devoutly Jewish family. Well, what kind of families had these people in Rome been raised in? Well, they had been raised in overtly pagan families. Paul had spent a large portion of his life as a legalistic, rule-following, straight-laced Pharisee. But what about these Christians in Rome? Well, they had lived a big portion of their life in debauched Greco-Roman culture. Paul had been raised out in the far reaches of the Roman Empire, out in the boondocks. But these people in Rome, they, they lived in the cultural, political center of the world. They are in so many ways vastly different than Paul, and yet Paul's heart ached for these Christians. He longed to see them, he longed to invest in them, he longed to serve them, and it's such a great picture of the way the gospel reorders our relationships. 
And what I want to do in this passage is I just want to highlight five lessons we learn from Paul here about what we should be pursuing in our relationships with each other in the body of Christ. What should my attitude be toward my brothers and sisters in Christ? Let me give you five things. Here's the first one. Number one, be thankful for them. Be thankful. Notice how Paul starts this in verse 8. Paul says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Now, it's interesting that Paul says, first, but did you notice he never actually comes back and gives a second or a third? He gives first, and it's like he gets so caught up in this that he just stops there. And the first thing, the primary thing that Paul wants them to know is he thanked God for them. Specifically, he thanked God for their faith. Do do you know why Paul had these other brothers and sisters in Christ? He had them because of God. God had done the same thing in their lives that God had done in Paul's life. And so Paul was thankful for what God had done. And Paul was thankful for what God was continuing to do in their lives. He mentions here that word of their faith was spreading throughout the whole Roman Empire. In other words, when when Paul writes this letter, remember, he's in Corinth at this point. Corinth is 1,200 or so miles away from Rome. And yet these believers, all the way over in Corinth have heard word about what God was doing in the city of Rome. And imagine how encouraging it would have been for for these little communities of Christians in the far reaches of the empire. They're hearing word that there were people in Rome who were bending the knee to Jesus as Lord. They're hearing word that there is this vital, vibrant, growing community of Christians right under the nose of the Roman emperor in Rome. And for that, Paul is thankful. Let me just let me mention one thing that Paul says here that's important. It's kind of a side point, but it's important. Notice the way Paul says that he thanks God for them through Jesus Christ. Do you see that in verse 8? I thank my God through Jesus Christ. See, the picture we get in the Bible is that, that all of the blessings of salvation flow to us through Jesus. So, so think of it like Jesus is the, the conduit through which God's blessings flow to sinners coming in this direction. But Paul's reminding us here that it also works in the other direction. That the only way now that we can approach the Father is through Jesus. Think of Jesus in John 14 saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Or listen to how the writer of Hebrews says it. This is Hebrews 10, excuse me. Yeah, Hebrews 10, verse 19. He says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. The holiest he's talking about is the holy of holies, the very presence of God. The writer of Hebrews is saying, as believers, we can enter the presence of God. How? Well, he makes a point of saying, but it is only by his blood. Meaning the only way we can enter into the presence of God is by and through Christ's sacrifice. You have to come through Jesus, in other words. So so do you have burdens that you want to lay out before God in prayer? Come, but you have to come through Christ. Do you have 
praise that you want to give and thanksgiving that you want to give to God. Well, come and give it, but you have to give that praise and you have to give that thanksgiving through Jesus. And what that means is that you have to give that, you have to approach God recognizing Jesus is the only grounds that you can stand on. Jesus is the only way you could ever be accepted by God. This is why Christians often in our prayers will have that little phrase where we'll say, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Why do we, why do we say that? Is that like our little magical incantation that gives special spiritual dust to our prayers? Why do we say that? No, it's something we say to remind ourselves that the only way we can possibly approach God is through Jesus and what he's done. So we are coming to God, resting in his righteousness, not claiming our own. We are coming to God, clinging to Jesus' sacrifice. It's, this is rock of ages. We're coming to God saying, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. So everything about our approach to God, our prayers, our praise, my prayers are not accepted by God because they're so earnest. My praise is not accepted by God because it's so passionate. The only way any prayer, any praise is ever accepted is if it is offered through Jesus. I have, I have a high priest who has my name graven on his hands and written on his heart. And it is on, the only way I get in is because I am escorted in through Christ. So you don't, you don't have to say in Jesus' name, but you better be thinking it. Because every time we pray, that's the only way we can approach God. So even as Paul is giving thanks for these believers, he makes the point of saying he can only give this thanks through Jesus. So here's my, here's my question to you on this first point. When's the last time you thanked God for your brothers and sisters in the faith? When's the last time you said, Lord, thank you for what you've done in his life. Do you realize what a, what a gift of God it is that we actually get a front row seat to God's grace at work in the lives of other people? When is the last time you said, Lord, thank you for what I see you doing in his life? Thank you, Lord, for what I still see you doing in her life. Thank you, Lord, that you have brought them into this family and you have brought us into this family together. Don't you see that one of the, one of the, biggest blessings that God has given you as his child are the relationships with other Christians that he has connected you to. So thank God for that. Here's the second thing. Number two, regularly pray for them. Notice how Paul continues in verse 9. Paul says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers. Paul, he uses that phrase, God as my witness, when he's wanting to emphasize the truthfulness of what he's saying. So it's like he's calling God to the witness stand, and he's putting himself under oath, and he's wanting to make the point that when he says he always prays for them, he's not talking out of the side of his mouth. He means it. He is regularly lifting these people up before God in prayer. Okay, that's the point he's making. So he's not only thankful for them, he prays for them. As Paul keeps going back to God in prayer, his prayers are bigger than himself. And you find this in just about every one of Paul's letters. 
So our men are studying through Philippians right now on Thursday mornings. And listen to how Paul starts Philippians, writing to the church in Philippi. Philippians 1, beginning in verse 3, Paul says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy. So how does Paul start his letter to the Philippians? By expressing how thankful he is for them and by letting them know he regularly prays for them. Listen to how he starts his letter to the believers in Ephesus. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 15. Paul says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. What does Paul want them to know about his view of them? He is thanking God for them and he is regularly praying for them. I'll give you one more example. Listen to what he says to the church in Colossae. Colossians 1 verse 3. Paul says, we give thanks to God the Father, excuse me, to, to the, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. This was just part of Paul's Christian life. He was regularly thanking God for his brothers and sisters in the faith, and he was constantly lifting them up to God in prayer. And if you want great pictures of how we should be praying for one another, Paul often lists that out. There are two times, Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3, where Paul lists out how he was praying for the believers in Ephesus. Philippians 1, Paul lists out how he was praying for the believers in Philippi. He's praying that God would give them wisdom. He's praying that God will root them in the faith. He's praying that God will help them know the, the height and the width and the depth and the breadth of God's love for them in Christ. So he wants them to know that he's grateful and he wants them to know that he prays for them. And that he didn't just do it occasionally. Did you notice how in this passage in Romans, how Paul uses the word always? And he uses the phrase without ceasing. So that this is something that is a regular, ongoing part of Paul's devotional life. He is constantly lifting up other believers in prayer. I don't know, I don't know what your prayer life tends to turn into, but isn't it really easy in prayer for, for your prayers to only be the Lord, give me kind of prayers? Lord, give me this, and Lord, give me that, and Lord, give me a little bit more of this, and Lord, give me a little bit more of that. But you notice how Paul, a regular, emphatic part of Paul's prayer life was him lifting up the needs of other believers to the Lord. So how much of your prayer time is spent praying for your brothers and sisters in Christ. You realize that there are people, there are people sitting around you right now who are deeply discouraged in their faith. There are people sitting around you right now whose hearts are broken because they are pleading with God to save some family member who's outside of the faith. There, there are people around you right now who have had some crisis over the last six months that has rocked them to the core in their faith. There are people around you right now who are facing some huge decision in their life that's going to change the course, and they desperately need wisdom. You, you know what those people need from you and me? They need us to pray. So make it a regular part of your Christian life to pray for your faith family. When you're sitting in Sunday school and you hear somebody mentioning something that's going on at work that they're struggling with, or you see what is an obvious tense situation between a husband and wife in the class, 
write it down and make it a prayer matter during the week. Lift them up in prayer. So one of the ways that Paul is expressing his deep love for these saints is he is making prayers for them a regular part of his life. We need to pray for each other. Here's the third thing. Number three, seek, seek their company. Or you might word this, pursue fellowship with them. Seek their company, pursue fellowship with them. Notice part of what Paul was praying. Look at verse 10 and then the first part of verse 11. Paul lists out part of his prayer. He says, making request, if by some means, now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you. So what's Paul praying for with these Christians in Rome? Well, he's praying to get to Rome because Paul wants to see them. He even says in verse 11, I long to see you. Now, it's great that Paul could send them a letter to communicate with them, just like it's great that we can communicate with each other through social media and we can, we can send text messages to each other. That's all great, but Paul long to see them face to face. He wanted to lay eyes on them. He wanted to see them in the flesh and have a conversation with them. And that is a good and right desire. A Facebook group, listen to me, a Facebook group is no substitute for sitting across the table from another believer and looking them in the eye and having a conversation about what's going on and where they are in their faith. A Facebook book club is, is no substitute for inviting people into your house or sitting around a table or going into someone's home and actually seeing them and knowing what's going on in their life. A sermon podcast is no substitute for sitting with other believers and opening your Bibles together to study the Word of God. So while the, un while the uh, online stuff can be a help, while we're thankful for so many aspects of it, the danger of it is it can allow me to live my Christian life at arm's length from other believers. Where I have an online pastor who has no idea who I am. And I have online friends who don't really know what's going on in my life. And I, and I have an online church where all I really know about that church is the image they give online. And I have no idea what that church is, is really like. And maybe you think, but, but these online people, these are the people who are where I'm at spiritually. I've got a community of people who are exactly where I'm at. And I feel like a lot of the people in my church group aren't as far along as I am. So I need these relationships. Well, has it ever dawned on you that God wants you in those actual flesh and blood relationships in your church for their sake? Because they need help moving forward. And has it ever dawned on you that while you may be miles ahead of the people in your local church in some areas, there are other areas where you're likely a spiritual pygmy. There are other areas where your growth has likely been severely stunted. And the way God opens our eyes to that is through relationships with other Christians. It's through relationships with other believers that I come to see how unbelievably selfish I can be sometimes. When I get around other Christians who just serve sacrificially all the time, it's just how they're wired, it becomes so obvious to me how selfish I am and what a terrible servant I can be sometimes. 
So you might can look at your life and see lots of ways where you think you're doing fantastic, but it's actual relationships with flesh and blood people where God helps you see areas where you're not where you need to be. It's like, imagine a group of guys who... Let's say they work third shift with some company. And so it's six or seven guys, and they get together every evening right before they go into work to work out together. So they're going to the gym every night. Really, nobody else is there because of the time. And all these guys ever do is, uh, they do all they ever do is bicep curls. They do every sort of bicep curl you can imagine. So they have the biggest arms in town. And they would never dream of working out with any of those people with small arms. So they just work out together and they do bicep curls all the time. Meanwhile, they have the, the scrawniest little legs in town. And if they would just work out with somebody else, they'd see, they'd see that there are other things they need to be doing to help them be balanced in, in that. But because they stay in their little bubble, they never see the limitations. They never see the areas that they're lacking. What's, it's so easy for us to fall into that spiritually. Where I can create a, a bubble of people who don't really know me and I feel like they're all right where I am spiritually, but they all have the same strengths I do. And they don't help me see the areas that I'm weak in and they don't challenge me in things that I really desperately need to grow in. So pursue relationships. Here's the fourth thing. Number four, build up their faith. So Paul wants to see them. Paul's pursuing face-to-face fellowship with them. For what purpose? Like, like, is Paul just wanting to go to Rome so they can give him a tour of the Colosseum? Why is he wanting to see them? Well, he explains it. Look again at verse 11. There's something he's after. Paul says, For I long to see you, that I, that, so that, here's a purpose clause, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. He wants to impart some spiritual gift. Now, it's not crystal clear what he means by that. Because Romans 12 tells us these people, they've they've already received spiritual gifts. They've been given the Holy Spirit. They have gifts. Paul could be talking about, he could be talking about his giftedness. He's an apostle, and he's hoping to get there so he can impart use his spiritual gifts to bless them. Or he could be using it in a more generic way. There's some spiritual blessing he wants to give them. But what's the, what's the end game? He wants to impart this spiritual gift to what end? Do you see that word that he uses? The end game at the end of verse 11 is so that you may be established. That means he wants to strengthen their faith. He wants to improve their footing in the gospel. And it could be that he's sort of vague in the first part. I want to impart some spiritual gift. He's kind of vague because he doesn't know at this point exactly what they need. He hasn't met them yet. So he's not sure what they're strong in and what they're weak in. But once he gets there, he's going to impart some spiritual gift so that they'll be established, further established in their faith. He wants to strengthen them in the faith. And that's what, listen church, That's what we're after in our relationships with each other. There's all sorts of things we do together as as friends and brothers and sisters in Christ. We talk about lots of things. We can talk about we can talk about sports and we can talk about the weather and we can talk about politics and we can talk about our jobs. That's all fine and good and natural. 
We can do lots of things together. We can play golf and we can go fishing and ladies might go shopping or we might take a, a trip as two families to the beach. And all of that stuff is good and right to do. But if we're doing this right, at some point our conversations have to move towards spiritual things. That's what Paul's saying here. He's wanting to be with them so that he can build them up in the faith. Well, to build people up in the faith, guess what our conversations have to entail? Our conversations have to entail things about the faith. So if our relationships with each other never move beyond superficial level stuff, we're missing what Paul calls us to here. So look for ways in those relationships to move the conversation into things that matter. It, it might just be as simple as asking questions to somebody. Hey, how, how did you come to faith in Christ? How did you end up here? How did you end up at Deanwood? Or, or what's your spiritual background? How's the Lord brought you to where you are today? What do you feel like the Lord's been growing you in? What's, what's a book you feel like the Lord has used to really teach you? Or, man, there's so many great avenues. Maybe find somebody in your Sunday school class who's doing the book club that we're doing. And rather than just meeting two months from now at the end of it, ask if they want to meet every other week to talk about a few chapters at a time. Or ask, ask a friend in your Sunday school class if they want to get together for once a, a week for the next six weeks and work through the book of Ephesians. And y'all just read a chapter a week and talk about what God's teaching you. But the point is, the only way that you and I will ever build one another up in the faith is if we're actually having conversations about our faith. If we're having conversations about things that matter. Look at what Paul says in verse 12. Paul says, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and of me. Now, you got to see what's happening. In verse 11, Paul just said, hey, I want to visit you so I can help strengthen your faith. But it's like he immediately thinks, well, that might not sound just right. Because Paul doesn't want to give the impression that he's the all-time giver and they're the all-time receivers. Like he's the blessor and they're the blessees. So he immediately corrects that and says, I want to get there so that we can mutually encourage one another in the faith. Now think about, think about the humility of Paul there. Because th this is Paul we're talking about. Probably the greatest Christian who's ever lived. And he is writing to a relatively young group of Christians. People who are not very far along in their faith. And yet... Paul says to these relatively young Christians, I want to be with you so that we can mutually build each other up in the faith. Here's the way John Calvin described these verses. He said, note how modestly he, that's Paul, how modestly he expresses what he feels by not refusing to seek strengthening from inexperienced beginners. He means what he says too. For there is none so void of gifts in the church of Christ who cannot in some measure contribute to our spiritual progress. Ill will and pride, however, prevent our, our deriving such benefit from one another. Let me put that in my own words. You are never so old or so mature that you don't need the ministry of other Christians, including other Christians who might be at a vastly different stage of their spiritual development than you are. 
This is why in 1 Corinthians, Paul describes the church as a body and we're all the body parts, right? You remember that metaphor? We're just the body parts of a body. Well, listen, you might be the, let's say you're the hand. You might be the strongest, most finely tuned hand in the world, but you're still a hand. And there are a lot of things the hand can't do. And the hand desperately needs the help of the, of the eyes and the mouth and the heart and the lungs and the, and the liver. The hand will never get where it's far enough along that it doesn't need the other body parts. And neither will I. And neither will you. We need other flesh and blood Christians in our life if we're going to grow in the faith. Here's the final thing. Number five. Keep the gospel the main thing. Keep the gospel the main thing. Look at verse 13. Paul says, Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. So, so Paul's emphasizing that he had, he had made plans to see them before. He had wanted to go to Rome before, and God had always intervened and redirected his plans. But when he gets there, what's he after? What's he looking for? Did you pick it up in that verse? Here's what he's looking for. Verse 13, Paul says, that I might have some fruit among you. His, here's one goal. Paul's goal is spiritual fruit among them. Now, fruit is used by Paul to describe a couple different things. Paul uses fruit in Galatians to describe the fruit of the Spirit. Those are those Christ-like virtues that the Holy Spirit builds into our lives. He, he uses fruit elsewhere to describe conversions. So that when the gospel's preached, the fruit of that is people coming to faith in Jesus. But he also uses fruit to describe believers growing in the faith. So we just saw this Thursday morning with our men in Philippians 1 where Paul says that he's determined that Christ is going to be magnified in his body, whether by life or by death. He's going to magnify Christ no matter what happens. And if he lives, he says the way he's going to magnify Christ is he wants to see fruit produced in the lives of these believers in Philippi. What would the fruit be? Well, he explains that the fruit would be their progress and joy in the faith. In other words, the fruit Paul wanted to see, he wanted to see them moving forward in their faith, and he wanted to see in them a deepening joy in their relationship with Christ. And I think Paul probably has all that in mind here. That's, he's looking for all of it. He, he's hoping to get to Rome and preach the gospel, and the result will be unbelievers will come to the faith, and believers will grow in the faith. And he hits on both sides of that in these next two verses. Verse 14 Paul says, I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. Now, what does Paul call himself there? He calls himself a debtor. Now, in what way is Paul a debtor? How's he a debtor? Because if salvation is a gift of grace, how can a gift make you a debtor? If I gave you a gift after the service, and as soon as you unwrapped it, I said, okay, you owe me now. What would you think? You would think, well, that's not a gift. That's a bribe. That's not a gift. That's a payment. So if salvation is a gift, how could salvation make us debtors? 
Well, there's a couple ways you might be a debtor. If, um, if Tommy gave me, or let's say I borrowed $100 from Tommy, that would make me a debtor to Tommy, right? I owe him until I pay him back that $100, I'm in his debt. But let's say on the other hand that I saw Tommy out one day and, and he handed me $100 that he wanted me to pass on to Larry. That there's a gift he wanted to give Larry and he gave me $100 to give to Larry. Well, I'm now a debtor to Larry because Tommy has entrusted me with this $100 and until I hand that $100 bill on to Larry, I am a debtor to Larry. Okay, It's that second idea in which Paul is a debtor. It's like God has entrusted Paul with this gospel. And he has made Paul the apostle to the Gentiles. He has given Paul this commission to carry this gospel he's been entrusted with to all of these Gentile people, including these people in Rome, so that until Paul gets there and delivers the gospel, he feels like he is in debt to these people. He's a debtor to them until he passes on this good news that the Lord has entrusted him with. And notice there are no caveats to this. Paul says he's a debtor to Greeks and barbarians. That's civilized and uncivilized people. He's a debtor to wise and foolish. That's educated and uneducated people. It didn't matter who the person was. God had entrusted this gospel to Paul and he felt like he was obligated to pass it on. That, that's how he is in debt. And that's the same, the Bible's going to say the same thing about us, right? We're like, we're like the people in the cancer ward who have just been given the cure to cancer. And we now feel obligated to let the other people in the cancer ward know there's a cure and to let them know what that cure is. That's the way Paul felt. And then verse 15, Paul says, so as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Now I want you to notice what he says. He's writing to these Christians in Rome and Paul says, I am ready to preach the gospel to you also. So, so who all will Paul be preaching the gospel to? He says this to Christians. But wait a second, they're already Christians. They don't, they don't need to hear the gospel anymore, do they? Now make sure you get this, Christian. We never move on from the gospel. You realize that, right? Christians need the gospel too. I need, every day of my life, I need the message of Christ crucified. Every day. Every day of my life, I need to be reminded that my sin debt has been paid in full. Because every day of my life, I am tempted toward guilt and shame. I need to be reminded my sin debt is paid every day. Every day, I need to be reminded that Christ is alive. And his, his resurrection power is now at work in me through the help of his spirit, which means I don't have to live like a slave to all of my sinful passions and sinful desires. Every day I need to hear Paul in Philippians 1 saying, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. We never move on from the gospel. The way unbelievers come to the faith and the way believers grow in that faith is through the gospel. So that, that's always at the heart of our ministry together out into the world. And that's always at the heart of our ministry toward one another. So, so here's my encouragement to you, church, as I wrap up. Listen, let's work hard not to be isolated, lone ranger Christians. Work really hard in your life 
to enjoy all the benefits that there's wonderful things that come from online. I listen to scores of sermons online every week. So I'm not saying we shouldn't do that or value that. I'm saying don't let yourself see that as a substitute. God has called us into meaningful relationships with each other. Relationships that we pursue where we're grateful for each other. And we know one another's needs well enough that we know how we can be praying for each other. And we know what's needed in one another's lives to help build one another up into the image of Christ. So pursue that. Pursue the relationships Paul's describing. So let's bow together for a word of prayer. I'm going to give you a few minutes to go to the Lord yourself in your seat. And I would encourage you to do a couple things. One, maybe it's just a good time to thank the Lord for the people he's put around you. Thank the Lord for the brothers and sisters in Christ that he has put in your life. Take a minute to pray for them. Take a minute to ask God to burden you for these kinds of relationships, to help you take the steps. And listen, sometimes it's hard steps. It's challenging steps sometimes to to open up to relationships, ask someone out to breakfast, to pursue a friendship, to have a couple over looking for these sorts of relationships so that we can mutually be built up in the faith. But it's what God calls us to. So ask God for wisdom in pursuing it. So I'm going to give you a few minutes in your seat to go to the Lord, and then I'll come up and close us.